Hi everybody, today's episode might sound a little different than you're used to. Due to recording in a more remote area during a snowstorm, the audio didn't save at the quality I'd hoped for. This conversation had a lot of really good information that I didn't want you to miss out on, so parts of this episode have been re-recorded verbatim and input separately. Please keep in mind that during the pandemic, all episodes are recorded remotely, so naturally, the quality will vary between speakers regardless. I would like to give a huge shout out to Two Feet Apart's marketing assistant John for transcribing all of the audio for me to be able to record this again. So without further ado, let's jump into it. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Two Feet Apart with me, your host, Peachy Patra. Today, I'm so excited and a little bit nervous, but we are going to be talking death with Michelle King. Michelle, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, thank you so much. Um, I'm excited to be here today and uh, to talk about death a little bit. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, so I, uh, my name's Michelle King, and I live with my partner. And we live on 200 acres um, on the edge of the Banff National Park. So we, we uh, call our little place Little Heaven Ranch. And um, we absolutely love it out here. And I have a small business that I call The Last Gift. And I offer end-of-life doula services. And I'm very passionate about getting people to start talking about death, to get conversations started. And um, with that being said, and saying I'm an end-of-life doula, um, I just want to talk about that a little bit. And it's a term that is very unfamiliar to people. And so I want to just kind of explain what it is. And the term doula, many people know that term because there's birth doulas. And birth doulas have been around since probably around the 1960s. But the term doula itself is a Greek word, and it means servant or helper. And so an end-of-life doula is like a birth doula, but at the opposite end of life. We help people um, exit this world. We support them and guide them um, through the dying and death process. And so death doulas um, is another term. Um, I call myself an end of life doula. I just like that term better. Um, but you may see out and about um, people calling themselves death doulas or death coaches or end of life specialists or death midwives. Um, there are so many terms and everybody uses whatever they want, um, whatever they connect with and relate to. Um, and the reason for this is that there is no regulating body in Canada. Um, but there are some organizations that are trying to set um, levels of proficiency. So um, they are working on that for the, the whole um, end of life doula movement. But yeah, overall end of life doulas, um, basically our role is to educate and empower individuals to make decisions on their own end of life care 
And also advocacy comes into it too, um, sometimes. And it's for the people and their families um, that have been diagnosed with terminal illness um, or are at end of life. Um, end of life doulas also work with healthy people um, and people who are facing the loss of pets. So they're used in a, in a lot of different circumstances. And doulas, we approach death and dying from a very holistic point of view. We're very concerned with people's social, emotional, and spiritual needs. We provide non-medical and non-judgmental support to people. So that's really important. We don't do any sort of medical. It's, um, it's a very holistic uh, way of working. And not all end-of-life doulas offer the same services either. Um, it's varied, really varied. And um, so you really have to look if you're looking for support in this area um, to try to find somebody who offers the services that, that you're looking for. Um, and for example, some services that end-of-life doulas could offer um, is advanced care planning helping people create um, their, their uh, care plans in case they can't speak for themselves if they end up in the hospital and, and what are their wishes. Um, that's called our advanced care planning where you're creating a personal directive. Um, and they also offer end of life planning services where they help you make decisions um, on what you want for your burial plans, um, funeral planning, vigil plans, um, living funerals or bucket lists, um, and grief support also. So those are just some of the things that um, doulas offer. So they do not offer any kind of medical care and they don't push any agenda or philosophy Basically, we're just there to listen to people's fears and support them in making their own decisions around end of life. So hopefully that helps people understand <laughs> what end of life doulas do. That is super interesting. I like that that kind of even goes into when it comes to the passing of pets and things like that. You know, I've previously lost pets and one of them was 13. And like you said, um, it's just another type of transition that you need to normalize the conversations between. Um, there's such emphasis and support on the process of birth. And I've never even thought about it until um, I started working in this field and things like that. Um, but just having that same care and attention being placed on the other side of the transition as well, um, because it is equally impactful. So what kind of got you into this field of work? Well, how I became a doula, um, a death doula, um, I really feel called to this work. Um, and I'm and I'm sure everyone who does this type of work does feel the calling also because it's, it's not the type of work for, for everyone. Um, it's really deep work. It's hard work around hard subjects. But the real pivotal point that brought me to this type of work 
was realizing how unprepared I was when my mother had a stroke in 2018. Um, she, I found her laying on the floor in her house and I live an hour away, um, but the neighbors were quite concerned. And so I drove in and nobody else had a key to her house. Um, so I had called the police and they went to the house and um, asked if they wanted, if I wanted them to break the door down. And I said, no, that I was going to be there shortly. So I found her, she was conscious and um, she was lucid. And so she went to the hospital and um, she had had quite a severe stroke and was paralyzed on uh, her left side. And that was on a Saturday. And it was, it just was a culmination of uh, the chaos in the hospital um, and not knowing what to do at all. Um, the first of all was that the doctors wanted to know what her resuscitation orders were. And thankfully she was lucid and I just said, you know, you can ask her and talk to her directly. And they did. So they got her resuscitation orders and that's really um, all they really wanted to know in, in the hospital. She had a personal directive that was, had been made up by a lawyer, but quite a long time ago. And um, so knowing what had happened to her, I was trying to find her documents, her will, her power of attorney and personal directive. I knew she had them done and I thought I knew where they were, but when I went to look for them, it took me about three days to find them in her house. And um, the worst thing was, is when I looked in the place where I thought they were and they weren't there, was actually going back to the hospital and having to ask my mother, you know, when she's kind of in a really, um, you know, fragile situation, having to ask her where these documents were. It just about killed me to ask her where her will was. Um, it was just so hard. It was just the most terrible thing, but I found the documents, but then I got this personal directive and it was very vague, very um, sort of legal speak because it was done by a lawyer. It was unclear. Um, so it was not clear what her values and her wishes were. And I had to keep reading this personal directive over and over and over to try to understand what she would want for care in this situation in the hospital. And it was a one paragraph thing. Um, so um, that was the first thing. Then when she lost consciousness, she was conscious until Wednesday. Then she lost consciousness. And the hospital kept calling me at night because her situation sort of kept changing. She was still having bleeding on the brain, even though she was conscious for the first few days, they kept doing um, 
uh, MRIs and scans and CT scans. And she had still had bleeding and they were really worried. And so I kept having to go back to the hospital late at night to update the resuscitation orders in case certain things happened. Um, so basically I had no sleep that week. It was, it was just um, really chaotic. And so when she lost the consciousness, um, I had to try to figure out how hard we were going to try to keep her alive, mm -hmm. you know, and what she, what would she want, um, in what kind of medical interventions and, you know, would she have wanted to live paralyzed, um, if she did regain consciousness, you know, and probably in a wheelchair and, you know, probably having to be fed all these things mm -hmm. and, so it just kind of kept going on because once she lost consciousness, then it was a downhill slide from there. And it got to the point where we decided to, that she was not going to recover from this and that we were going to move her into comfort care. So then um, the hospital staff started asking me for the name of a funeral home. Well, I was just taken aback. <laughs> mm -hmm. I was like a funeral home. Like she's not even dead yet. Yeah. And I was just like, I'm like, that was the farthest thing from my mind. All, along with everything else. I had a house full of family. I had a brother that lived overseas who had had his passport had expired and he was trying to get there before she died. And, um, you know, chaos coming from all different directions. And so they were asking me about this funeral home. Well, oh my gosh, I didn't even know what to do. I was like, it, I just couldn't even think about it. And so that was just another layer of stress on top of everything else. And um, yeah, so, so that all happened. And then what was the next thing? Um, so the basically the culmination of, of all these things and she was moved into a, a private room and she was on comfort care and then I began to panic because I did not I didn't know what death looked like mm -hmm. how would I know that she was dying or she was close to death and you know I didn't want her to be alone what did it look like nobody um you know, was there in the hospital to ask the the staff were overworked, um, constantly running, you know, barely had time to talk to you. And so I happened to be in the, uh, the lounge in the hospital and found a pamphlet and the pamphlet told you the signs of dying. So that's how I learned what death was going to look like. And, um, so then after that, it was like, what do you do with her body? You know, what were her wishes? Because I tried talking to her. I tried having those conversations um, way before this happened. And she wouldn't talk about it. And I tried broaching it a couple of times and she shut me down. So, you know, I didn't bring it up again. And I thought maybe I, you know, I had an idea of, of what she'd want. And, you know, you just put it out of your mind you don't think about it 
So um, it was very fast and chaotic. She passed away in a week. She was in the hospital a week and it took seven days and she died. And so it was an extremely chaotic, stressful and a burdensome uh, process for me. And I, I remember feeling angry um, when I look back um, afterwards that if I had known what I know now, things could have been so much different, um, you know, way before the stroke ever happened. And just because I, I didn't know, I didn't know anything really about death, how things worked in the province, rules and regulations, all those type of things. So I basically don't want others to go through what I did. You know, there's no need to go through the chaos. Um, and it really starts around having conversations. And so I'm a huge proponent of, of getting people to talk. And um, that goes along with uh, being uh, a end of life doula, because we're um, basically here to, to talk to people about their fears and their concerns around end of life and to help educate and empower them to make decisions and to become knowledgeable and, and lessen those fears. And unfortunately, people fear talking about death. And um, it's just one of those things that aren't priority in our lives. And um, people think, you know, they're going to die if they talk about it. It's um, a taboo subject. Our society has, has um, you know, not, we don't talk about it. Um, a lot of, of our um, European background, our culture tells us, you know, just suck it up and you know, life is, is tough. We don't talk about those things. Um, and it's part of human nature, I guess, to not, to not talk um, about the hard stuff also. But really, it all stems, you know, when we think about where this all came from, is really a lot of people feel when death was taken out of the home. So the first funeral homes came around in about the late 1800s in Canada. And um, we used to care for our dead at home. We used to see death all the time. We had to, there was, there was no options. We developed our, our own um, mourning rituals. And um, so then once funeral homes came and started taking the bodies away, we didn't see it anymore. And then our society has become a really highly medicalized, um, you know, healthcare system. And we, as a society, we've separated body from spirit. So the doctors, they treat the bodies, you know, and the doctors aren't trained in school of, of how to talk to people. And so now we're living in this whole death positive movement and um, some people may have heard that that term before and basically it's a social and philosophical movement that encourages people to speak openly about death and dying so that's what this whole death positive movement is now and um, so we're here to um, change the world <laughs> 
I think it's incredible that this life experience and situation kind of pushed you into this new path and kind of led the way for your future and what you went into. Um, my heart truly breaks for you in the situation with your mom, um, not having that support and being in that circumstance. Um, I commend your courage and bravery and um, the way that you were able to turn this into a positive um, and just taking that the power away from the bad things in that moment and using it towards something positive. Like you've mentioned a few times, people are scared to talk about death. And I'm not going to lie, I am also one of those people. And so at the beginning of this, I was like, you know, I'm a little nervous for this conversation, to be honest. Um, but it's one of those things that there's so many unknowns. And I'm uncomfortable with that as a type A person, especially. I'm like, no, I need to know. I need to know all the details. I need to know all the facts. But it's that unknown um, for many people that kind of builds into this fear. And so normalizing these conversations being able to talk about it is so important right yes it's um it's definitely not the, the work that you know a, a lot of people do it's quite an, a new it's a new movement but an old movement it's it's really you know it's one of those funny things right because in in uh, you know ancient cultures there was usually a medicine person or a shaman or or somebody like cultures have always done um, some ritual or something around death. And then in our North American society, we've really removed ourselves um, from it. And our whole society pushes us to be younger, to be beautiful. We don't think about death, right? So, um, but we really need to, and, and you know, COVID-19, you know, mm -hmm. here we are in a pandemic and thousands of people are dying. And so this whole pandemic has really started to wake us up to the importance of having these conversations. And, um, you know, I, I, I think people are slowly warming up to it. Um, I think a lot of people still have their heads in the sand. Um, I'm on a lot of webinars about um, all topics related to death and dying um, all over the world. And statistics are very interesting. I don't have any to share here. But, um, you know, people just aren't doing their advanced care planning. And that is probably one of the most important things right now. It's having the conversations with your loved ones or, you know, the people who you appoint to be your healthcare agents, the ones that are going to speak for you. If, uh, and if you can't speak for yourself, knowing your values and wishes, you know, what's the quality, your quality of life? What do you want that to look like? You know, do you want to be hooked up to tubes and machines and can't see people? You know, um, what what do you want? And it's creating this opportunity. COVID is creating this opportunity for end of life doulas to talk about our work. Um, and it brings more awareness to this type of work also. And there's lots of things going on in 
in the uh, online world, I mean, our whole life has moved online now with COVID-19. And, um, you know, we have death cafes where people um, go on to a Zoom meeting and somebody facilitates it and um, you eat cake and talk about death. That's kind of their their uh, marketing line. And um, it's not a therapy session, but you just join a whole bunch of group of people on a Zoom meeting and you can talk about all different things. If you've got questions about things, um, it's really about conversation starting. There's death over dinner, which is another one. Um, it's a organization that started to get people again, talking about, about death and dying. And you invite all your friends over for dinner and have a party and you talk about death mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, card decks. Um, the death deck, I, I just bought one a few months ago, and it's meant to be a conversation starter. And it was created by two, two women in the States, um, again, to get people talking. And it's kind of like, you know, trivial pursuit. It's got questions and answers and, um, and you can use it with kids, which is, is great. Like, um, I think that's another thing too, that's, that's really come up is, you know, talking to your kids about death and dying um, and, and not dismissing them because mm -hmm. kids experience grief and loss and they shouldn't be dismissed. Um, so, you know, things like these death decks, there's all kinds of tools online, different games. Um, and there's a lot of websites who have published materials around um how to get conversations started. So how to approach your aging parents or your spouse who won't talk. Um, yeah, I know a lot of Canadian organizations that, um, that have resources online. So yeah, so you've just, I just tell people like, you've got to just keep trying and you've got to try different techniques with different people because they're all, there still will always be those people that, you know, refuse. Um, but, you know, just to keep trying to, to get the conversation started. And um, I'd say like your, your number one thing is your advanced care plan right now. Um, a lot of people say that they want to do one, but there's very few people who have actually done one and the one that's the most important. So an advanced care plan is kind of an umbrella and underneath that umbrella is all those documents that um, go into, um, your, you know, what would happen at, at uh, end of life or your death, like your will and your power of attorney and personal directives. But it also includes what your wishes are if you can't speak for yourself. So that's your kind of your personal directive where you appoint your healthcare agent, that person who's going to speak for you. Um, that's really the important one that um, right now really getting people to complete and online. There are a number of resources and forms you can download. Um, they have questions where you help you understand your values and beliefs. You sign it, date it, have it witnessed, and there's your advanced care plan. At least somebody knows what, what you might want. And in the province of Alberta, 
we have these things called green sleeves that are um, put out by Alberta Health Services. And you can get them from, um, you can order them online. And um, it is a plastic, green plastic sleeve. And inside of that um, is where you would put your, um, you know, your advanced care plan. But basically it's forms um, that says what your resuscitation orders are. And if, if you're somebody with a medical condition and you're found unconscious in your house, do you wanna be resuscitated? Um, and it's a form you keep on top of your fridge and paramedics in Alberta are trained to look there so that they know um, what your wishes are. And you can put other documents and forms in there and your, um, your uh, healthcare card to put a copy of it in there too. So that's my little spiel on that. <laughs> and you could also, you know, if you didn't want to do that all yourself, um, you can always hire an end of life doula. They can help you. Um, uh, or like a doula that does help with advanced care planning because not all end of life doulas do. So that's so, and I love that the first, I love that the paramedics are trained to look there. And I think that's so important so that you can make sure you're respecting someone's wishes along the way. Um, and wow, that was just, I'm taking in all the information. Um, <laughs> one thing that you did mention that I want to touch on, and I don't know if now I'm suddenly hyper aware of this because I'm expecting. And so now I'm like, I need to learn all the parenting things. Um, but when it comes to approaching death with kids, um, what would you say are some of the key factors and like most important things to remember? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so important. Um, I'd say the most important thing is that adults have to become comfortable with their own mortality mm. um, because the more comfortable you are with your own mortality and talking about death and dying the more comfortable you're comfortable you will be talking to your kids and I think the worst thing we can do is to dismiss your kids when they ask you questions or avoiding topics mm. and um, you know maybe if if they ask something and you're not quite comfortable, you can um, just tell them that you'll, you'll uh, set a time and, and talk about it and go do your own research. Um, there is a lot around talking about kids and about age appropriateness. Um, one of the biggest things is not using euphemisms. You know, you don't say, oh, grandma went to live in the stars or, um, and we also don't really like to say, um, you know, grandma passed away. We like to use the words grandma died because you don't want to confuse children. You don't want to make it worse. You know, you don't want them sort of thinking there's this magical place where, you know, grandma might come back or something. So there's an awful lot about um, grief 
you know, talking to, to kids about death and grief. And there's some excellent online resources. Um, there's a, a website called Virtual Hospice. And they do a kids and grief um, um, online Zoom meeting. Uh, I think it's monthly, but there are so many good resources. You know, all these organizations, the Alberta Hospice and Palliative Care Association, they offer a lot of on online um, webinars. Um, but but people have to take that action. You know, you have to put that in your day timer, make it a priority, and um, you know, make it a. a a learning priority and and um, get educated yourself. Mm, that's pretty interesting. Um, it's one of those things, you know, I recorded an episode on raising kids in cultural environments representing kind of where you come from and your history and legacy there as well. Um, and so it's, I guess it's similar in the sense that you can't really dive into that until you start to learn it yourself and acknowledge it within yourself as well. I think this is going to be such an important episode for so many people. How do you find that doing this work impacts your personal life? Mm. My impacts my personal life. Well, I think we're all very different, but um, I do live out in the country. Um, <laughs> so I live in a, a very beautiful place and I can take breaks and um, I do take the time if I am feeling I, I need it emotionally. Um, I do schedule time to, um, you know, recharge my batteries. Um, I also have my own personal life. I've experienced a lot of grief and loss, and I've done a lot of my own work. And I think that's probably the most important thing. Um, I do offer grief support groups I run. And so I'm, I think I feel pretty comfortable around talking about grief and death and loss because I've done my own work. And I think that's really important is that we have to explore ourselves before we can hold space for other people. And, um, and I'm constantly working on that, but um, I really do make um, my own personal well-being a priority. And I think that's another really, really important thing that a lot of people um, living in our fast-paced, crazy world, um, they don't take time for it or, or they misinterpret it maybe what well-being is. But um, yeah, I really take a lot of a lot of time to look after myself. So. Good. That's so important. I think maintaining that mm -hmm. self-care, especially in um, the healthcare field of work, the mental health support work, all of that stuff is so important. Right. Yeah. What are some challenges that you often face in this line of work? Mm. Oh, there's so many. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, 
the biggest challenge is people being scared of, I think, what you call yourself, you know, end of life doula. Oh my gosh, that sounds so woo woo. Or, um, you know, maybe people just dismissing you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the challenge of the medical um, system acknowledging your worth, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, um, and trying to break those barriers and get people to understand what it is you really do and that your work is valuable. And so doing things like this, the podcasts, um, getting out there and talking to people, just talking, talking, talking all the time. And, um, you know, anywhere you can to get the word out about the type of work that's being done. And that there are people out there that that will support you. Um, it's, it's very interesting um, being a bereavement facilitator. Um, when I, when I, uh, form a group, a grief group, I ask um, all the people a number of different questions about their losses. And the number one of the number one questions I ask is, who do you have for a support group, you know, people that you can talk to. And it just amazes me how um, many people say they have nobody, or maybe one person, and if you know them in the community, then I, 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 you know, you look at them and go, oh, they're popular and they, you know, have a big family and they know lots of people and you wouldn't expect that. Mm-hmm. And it just amazes me when you ask people if there was somebody that they could just trust to listen to them talk about their grief or their loss, that they don't have people. They don't feel they have that, that support group. So that's kind of where doulas, you know, can step in and, you know, be that person, hold that space to talk about those hard things and, and help people come to terms with a lot of hard stuff that they can't talk to anybody else about. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's, um, it's a challenge and it's an, it's a really quite a new thing in our modern world right? It's a real new industry, I guess, is what you'd call it. And challenging to a lot of other people in the death industry, you know, to to funeral homes, for instance, you know, you want to make allies with them and let them understand, but we are also here to offer people options. You know, there's other options you can have for funerals. Um, So you, you know, you have to sort of tread lightly a little bit and um, give everybody space to do their work. Mm-hmm. You've got such a good point there. And I think that it's important to recognize that, you know, it's not like it's a competition. There's room for everybody to have their impact and to make their difference when it comes to this. Um, and even when it comes to a lot of different um, fields and industries and things like that as well. Mm-hmm. Do you find that, uh, you know, I notice right now that one of the big things is people tend to use your job description or your career, um, to kind of 
attempt to define your character? Do you find that you're met with, um, like what kind of reactions are you met with when you talk, tell people what you do or talk about your work? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I don't know if people haven't given it much thought before, they probably don't think it's that valid until they actually need you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, you can tell people they might be interested in it. Um, but again, it, each person's individual. But, you know, when it comes down to the brass tacks and, you know, somebody is dying and they don't know what to do or where to turn or um, they have questions, then they might remember you. They'll go, mm-hmm. you know what? I met this girl in the elevator and she gave me her business card and she told me, um, you know, she was a doula and she helped, you know, people you know, people and their families, um, dying people and their families to um, deal with end of life issues. So um, I think it will, it, you know, it'll take its time, but it will, um, it will become more popular for sure. And especially, you know, this whole pandemic thing we're living in and who knows how long this is going to last. And, and, um, you know, if or when it, you know, something touches you, there's an illness, that's, that's usually when people would, would turn to a doula, right? Mm-hmm. Even though doulas work with people, you know, healthy people, we work with healthy people to create advanced care plans. I mean, anyone over the age of 18 should have a, should have um, an advanced care plan that says, what do you want to happen you know, at end of life, or what's your, what are your funeral wishes or your burial wishes? Um, you know, we should mm-hmm. have those plans in place because that helps reduce the burdens on our loved ones. And um, that's the goal for a lot of people is they don't want to leave, they don't want to be a burden, but mm-hmm. um, they don't think of all the things they need to put in place or to how to make things a lot easier. And we have a lot of tools now, especially in our digital age, where we can, you know, help make things better for people. I just learned the other day in my iPhone, I can create, um, and in case of emergency, um, where a per- if my phone's locked, they just press the emergency contact button that shows up on my phone and they can get who my healthcare agent is, Mm -hmm. uh, all of that information. And I never knew that before, but I just found out and filled it all in. Yeah. Yeah. So lots of tools out there. Yeah. I think that phone one especially is such a great tool because, you know, in instances of like car accidents and things like that, you really don't know how to proceed until you can until you can right. identify something about that person and you don't know yeah. who to talk to or anything. Yeah. Um, so I think whoever came up with that was brilliant. And I love that uh, you mentioned that people just don't want to be that burden on other people. And it's so true. Um, and, you know, you hear of people that are like, oh, my mom was talking about when she 
passes away, like all of this. And I told her not to talk like that and whatever. And you know, it's one of those things that you continue sweeping it under the rug. And then the time comes and you're like, wait, what was she saying again? I don't remember. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's great that there is that option of support that's there and that so much of it right now you can access online, especially with the pandemic and everything that's going on. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, and there's so many, um, there's so many other things too, you know, like a person should really create, um, the, like a life manual and, um, it's called, goes by different names again, like peace of mind planners. I call mine, my life manual. Um, you know, I've heard it called death dossier before, and that's that manual that, uh, that binder that has, all your life information in it, um, you know, personal information, um, uh, financial information, um, house information, you know, I've heard so many stories, you know, where, you know, say, and the husband is, is dying and he wants to, you know, the wife is going to stay on the farm, but, you know, how do you switch the generator on if, you know, the power goes out and she's never mm. done it in 40 years, but you know, now she needs to know sort of an example like that. So, you know, to create these manuals um, and there's all kinds of them on the market. Um, I don't think any of them are perfect <laughs> and I've created my own um, just into a binder with dividers, but um, it would sure help out you know, somebody looking after your affairs, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so I think that's an important thing to complete too. And, you know, it's not to say that this stuff has to all be done in a day or a weekend, but to get started on it, you know, and most people have files and stuff that they could pull from and put something together, you know, fairly easy, but to keep adding to it, you know, and our digital life, is another really important thing you know what what do you do with my Facebook account do I want it left live for a year after I die um, how does my spouse feel about it should I shouldn't I what about all my online accounts what are all my passwords um, oh there's so many things about um, thinking about your online life Yes, absolutely. And I noticed that similar to the phone thing, Facebook has integrated something like that. And so you can dedicate it so that if you pass away, there's one person that can access your account and you can kind of preset a few things. And so I remember when I came across this, I think I was just trying to update privacy settings, um, but I came across this and I had set it as my mom and then she got a notification and she's like, what, what are you doing? And I was like, no, like I just, just in case if anything happens, that's just an option on Facebook that it had. So I put you down um, mm -hmm. and, you know, but at first it's kind of like, wait, why is that a thing? And then you realize that's so important. And it's, it's good because especially right now with social media, that is such a key way to keep in touch with so many people. And that majority of my friends right now are online. Like I, when I moved, I moved across the country. And so the only friends I've had, because I've been here since the pandemic are the ones I've been able to maintain over social media and the internet. And so I think even just factoring in all of those little things is so essential to kind of not making it a seamless transition, but just kind of taking the worry out of it. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots and lots of things. We, we live kind of complicated lives these days. And so there's lots of things to think about it. And if we, we truly don't want to be a burden, then um, there's things that we can do. And we just, you know, you have to take action. And uh, usually if you truly don't want to be a burden, then you will take action. Yeah. And I imagine it's one of those things that kind of as you start to prepare and as you learn a little bit more, you become more comfortable with it. Because I find that as we're speaking about transitions, like when it comes to childbirth and that experience, I was terrified of it. And then I spent way too long researching way too many things trying to be educating myself and making those informed decisions and things like that. And now I feel so much more confident about it. And I feel like that could be transitional um, and applicable when it comes to death as well. It's one of those things that, you know, if you hear more about it and you learn about it and you're able to normalize these conversations, you can begin to take away some of the what ifs. Knowledge is power. And, um, but, also you know we are human beings and we we do need to connect with other people too and i and i think we get a a lot of healing and and support when we have somebody um you know that that uh, knows what our fears are and that that helps there's somebody there we have some a support person I imagine, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that you might get a lot of questions regarding your opinion when it comes to things such as like, are ghosts real? Are past lives a thing? Um, All of that. How do you approach that side of your work? Right. So um, one of the things with with an end of life doula is that we're we're non-judgmental. And we don't push any agendas of, of any kind. And what our, our role is, is to help people find their own answers to those things. So we can, we provide education um, and we provide the space, we, you know, to listen. And, um, you know, not a lot of times, you know, do we really want to ever give, you know, our own thoughts and opinions because that's not what's important it's the other person so that person needs to find that place themselves whether they believe or not and again it's you know it's education pointing them to to resources um you know and listening to them and you know what are their thoughts um yeah, it's not, it's not about us. It's, it's about them. So, you know, we could point them always to resources and, and educational materials. And that's part of our, our role. And our, our role is for, to empower the individual to make the choice themselves, to make their own choices and decisions. Um, and, you know, and hopefully come to a place of peace around what they believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when people come to you and uh, given we're in a very um, isolated area with, um, you know, the cultural diversity really isn't here. Um, but 
do you find that you have to educate yourself on different cultures and their processes um, when it comes to death and this transition to be able to help various people work through this situation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, um, definitely where we live, there's not... Um, I mean, we are definitely multicultural for sure, but it, it a lot of cultures when it comes to death and dying, um, depending on the culture, they have a lot of ritual already around, you know, around dying. So they already have their built-in rituals. They kind of know um, how they want to proceed. Um, you know, mainly it's European origin, um, you know, people that that a lot of us are are dealing with um it is highly recommended that death doulas do educate ourselves on other cultures um i i definitely uh would say yes and i've heard of lots of death doulas or end-of-life doulas that um do work with different cultures and um they do probably work with different cultures in different ways. And so when you, when you're um, interested in hiring uh, an end of life doula, um, you know, we have a discussion around what, what it is that you want from, from me, you know, what type of services and, and everything is done by contract and, you know, what can I provide and do I feel comfortable providing that to you? And if I don't, maybe I can find a doula that can serve you better, that is more educated in your culture. And so across North America, there is a lot of uh, organizations. And now the whole world has moved online that most likely I could probably find you a doula that could support you virtually that is a lot more um, versed in your culture than I am. I love that. And I like that it's similar to other types of doulas as well. If you recognize that it's not a good fit, it's so important to realize and to find somebody that is because especially during these key moments of your lifetime, um, having that significant impact um, on your life, on your family's lives. It's things that you definitely want to make sure that you're compatible with that individual that is kind of guiding you and supporting you through this process. Exactly. You know, and sometimes we do the best we can and we can't, um, you know, can't provide maybe exactly what you're looking for. But, um, you know, I've heard of instances where um, a doula, um, had no experience with a certain culture but this person had nobody and they went you know into the hospital and um you know didn't want this person to die alone and just by observing the surroundings in this hospital room and personal belongings she had a good idea of what she could do and how she could support this person and she did the best she could with with what she had and that's what we do Mm -hmm. What is something um, that you've been able to 
pull from doing this type of work that you would tell your younger self? Oh, boy. (laughs) Oh, I, you know, I truly believe that, um, that I would, oh, try to create ritual. I think that's something that's really, really missing from our society for, for our North American culture. It's, we've kind of gone away from, from, from ritual. And, you know, it's funny. I was reading an article the other day. I came across it. Someone had posted it online and it was called why the Irish get death right. And I had to read it because I'm Irish on my father's side. And, um, so I read the article and it was so good. And a lot of people are familiar with Irish wakes. And so, you know, an Irish wake is like, is an ancient ritual. And I think it's one of the most ancient European rituals, um, I think from what I was reading. And so when there's a death, the body's kept in the house or, you know, somebody's house in the community and the whole community comes and they pay their last respects. And, you know, there's women that cry. And um, then once, you know, people are done talking to the dead body, they go into the living room and they have some drinks and they um, visit with everybody and tell stories about the person who died. And they... It's a, it's a form of restoring order to the world. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's, that's what ritual is. It's helping us um, find meaning and to heal and to grieve communally. And that's what, what we need as humans, I believe. And so um, the Irish still do this. And uh, it was funny because I was thinking the only thing I ever remember you know, about somebody dying on my father's side, there was drinks in the living room, but that was it. There wasn't much more ritual. And um, so I I really truly believe to, to try to get your families and communities and, and um, connect in a deeper way. I think for people to become really become aware and live in a more conscious way and and understand the wholeness of our lives that there is you know life encompasses birth and death death is is normal and uh we can't we can't pretend that it's not and we we shouldn't live that way absolutely um and how would you see this industry ideally evolve over the next few years and into the future Mm. Well, that's a good question. And I'll tell you, there's kind of a movement happening already. There is an organization in Canada that is trying to get um, end-of-life doulas as part of our palliative care health system so that everyone has access 
two doulas. Um, because some doulas do the work for free. Some doulas do the work to make a living at it. Some do it as a hobby. But um, they are really, really trying to let the medical uh, system understand the type of work that we do and that they believe that every Canadian should have access to to a doula, someone to listen um, deeply to their concerns and their fears around their health and end of life. And, and so they're working to try to um, get funding uh, for doulas and that we would, we would become part of the palliative care um, health system. That would be incredible. Mm-hmm, it would be. And they're making pretty good strides from what I understand. Are they? Mm-hmm. That's amazing because I know, um, you know, I work in a field in which people pass away often and it's natural. And so we have chaplains on site and things like that. Um, but that's the only resource that we are currently offering and that we are allowed to access as the workers as well. Um, but having someone like you even while they're still healthy and a little bit more independent can help make that transition. I can only imagine um, the massive difference that it would make to so many different people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right now, pretty much um, most end of life doulas um, are probably hired by families or hired privately by somebody um, diagnosed with terminal illness. Um, I know a lot of people interested in end-of-life doula work do a lot of volunteer work. You know, they do a lot of volunteer work at hospices. That's usually where people kind of get their foot in the door. Um, you know, so, yeah, it's, uh, it would be nice if, if everyone had access to it. I think it would really help with even a lot of the, the mental health issues in our society, just having that person they could talk to and they don't have to worry about, you know, paying. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm with you. You've got me convinced. Um, I would love to see it become a part of the healthcare system, a part of, you know, the processes that they implement and things that they do to help you during these things. Um, so now I'm going to send this to everybody and be like, guys, you need to listen to this because we need to talk about this. Um, it is so important and it's something you know, it's one thing to just figure out the financial side of things, you know, what you want for a funeral in terms of that, but it becomes so much more than that. And it's so much deeper. Um, it's something even from the way it's approached and the way that people tell you that someone passes away, everything ends up staying with you. And so even I vividly remember like 13 years ago when my mom sat me down and told me that my biological father had passed away, um, it's one of those things that you just remember so distinctly. And honestly, um, I had a car accident and lost the majority of my memories. Um, but that's one of the things that stuck. And so when you speak to people, these are really the moments that they'll truly remember and hold with them. What is something about your story that you think is important for other people to hear? Mm, oh, boy. Well, really, that whole story of of um, what I went through at the hospital 
Um, it was just, it really was chaos and we never know when we're going to go or when somebody we love, something's going to happen or there's going to be an accident. And I truly believe that we can lessen the, the chaos and the stress by just becoming prepared, um, getting, getting all our documents in order, having the conversations with your loved ones and, and your agents um, about your wishes. Things can be so much better. Um, and getting the proper documents is another one too. Like my mom's personal directive was so vague and unclear about what she wanted. And, um, you know, I must have read it like over a hundred or more times to try to make sense of the right decisions I had to make about her care there in the hospital. Um, huge, huge stress. So I just, I just urge people to, um, to educate themselves, to start having some conversations. I know it's hard, um, but to keep working on it. That's beautiful. And hopefully that is something that's really emphasized to people in this episode. Um, and they can become really conscientious and take with them this kind of information because I know I for sure will. How can listeners best find or support you? Mm. Um, I'm on Facebook. Everything is virtual um, in this day and age. Um, I actually, I'm supporting people virtually also because of COVID, we're not going into people's homes. Um, so basically um, on Facebook, you can find my business, The Last Gift, and I'm on Instagram. And I have a website that I'm working on that I'm hoping is up and running very soon. And that's thelastgift.ca. And you can find my uh, email and all my contact information on those sites. That's perfect. Thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing all that you're working on, um, things that you're doing, what brought you into this, and just kind of sharing your passion with us. I think it's beautiful and there's so, so much purpose behind it. Well, thank you for having me. I was, I'm honored to be here and that you asked me.